Welcome to the Grappling Discourse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scaff, and today I am joined by the great Cole Miller. Cole is one of the most inspiring figures, um, at least that I've met in my journey to become a martial artist. Cole fought in the UFC for a number of years, but currently he is teaching and running his own gym in Georgia. Cole, it's an honor to have you on. I I always love getting to talk to you and learn from you. I want to just start by asking you about how you kind of got into MMA and what that early scene was like for you. What was it like in Georgia training and fighting MMA in those early years? Um, Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, The the early years was really fun and really exciting. I, I found out about MMA because I saw UFC one in 93, you know, on the, you know, my dad found out about it and we watched it in the living room at my, my granddad's house on the uh, cable box. You know, you had to punch in the numbers to, pur- to purchase it. And, uh, you know, the, I got exposed to it when it happened. So uh, from then on, I, we would watch them sometimes miss a couple, go to blockbuster video and, you know, buy, you know, or rent, you know, some of the videos of the ones that we missed, or even just rewatch some of the ones that we, um, you know, had seen before. Uh, Because if you remember, like, Ken Shamrock had, you know, gone to the WWE for a little bit. And so, so at Mike Tyson, so these combat sports figures that I had seen um, doing their thing went into this other thing that myself and my brother and many kids in that that age range had watched so then i would go back and rewatch some old stuff um, to see the world's most dangerous man and and one of the most vicious ko punchers of all time you know and these figures so i guess like that was my original exposure you know to mma was ufc one and then um I, my dad took me to an event um uh, when i was in high school it was like a local one where it was like the NHB, you know, so it was very, very like pancreation esque. And, uh, oh, hold on one second. I'm on this thing. All right. Uh, but, um, so it was like pancreas rules, like open hand palm strikes to the, to the, to the head, um, full head kicks and knees and stuff like that, but you couldn't hit somebody with a closed fist. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, fights that were happening in that that NHB era were like that because was the commission involved? Was it not involved? Was there an independent body involved? You know, so guys would try to do whatever they could do to to do fights to to get around um, the legalities and stuff. So that was like one thing that was going on. So we we saw it. That was really cool. And one of the guys that fought that night ended up becoming my instructor. You know, five four years later, something like that. And, uh, you know, I was really, we were really into pride, um, really into the UFC. So back then they would have a, an event like every other month, you know, so we would always catch those, you know, in the high school, in my high school years and stuff like that. And then when I got into college, um, I had like a LimeWire, you know, with, you know, in a T1 landline and I would download all these fighters, uh, highlight videos that were Japanese guys. I'd download Japanese shooto events and stuff like that. I was an MMA fan, you know, or NHB MMA, you know, fan back then. So I, I watched all this stuff. And, um, you know, I found out with my little, you know, 
job that I had, my little part-time job, I found out that there was like a, an MMA school um, or a guy, an MMA pro fighter that was teaching on Tuesdays and Thursday nights in my town to a small group of people in a, in a gym, like a fitness gym, you know, he rented some space a couple days a week. And then he, we were in this, you know, he had his own little facility, you know, 45 minutes an hour North of us, um, on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday type of thing. So I, I went, I went and tried it out and I knew I wanted to do that stuff. You know, it wasn't like, uh, I didn't know or, or man, this stuff seems kind of, dang- no, I, I, I knew I had seen it, you know, for many, many years and I, I wanted to test myself and, you know, I had, was in that phase. I didn't have anything to do and I wanted wanted something to do for personal development and something to do that was difficult. I was searching for something very hard um, at that point in my life. And, and I started training MMA and um, the coach had asked me, Hey, do you want to fight? I was like, yeah, that's why I'm here. You know, which made sense because this, at this time it was like a fight club, essentially, you know, like the, the, the pro that was running the training was, he was very good, but he did not have a, conventional um, upbringing, you know, so these were not, you know, organized classes where you show up, you do a warm up, you know, you, you do some drills, you learn some technique, and then you do some sparring at the end. It was like, what do y'all want to do today? And uh, nobody said nothing. It was like, okay, we're just sparring, you know, and you would either just grapple or you would just go and strike or you would start mixing it and it was very much a learn by doing, you know, you, you get kicked in the head, then he'd tell you how to block. You got caught in an arm bar. He wouldn't finish it. He would walk you through it on how to get out, you know, uh, like while he's doing it to you, he, you know, so this was not the normal thing that you see today. You know, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. Just kind of lay in the lamp for the, you know, the, the scene for everybody. And there were places that had a conventional you know, schools, but not where, where I came from. So um, that was kind of how it started. And I guess five or six months later, I, I, I fought. And so you take your first fight. I, I really want to go back to about knowing you wanted to fight because I know you probably deal with this all the time, being a guy that has that MMA, that UFC background. You get guys coming in that really just want to fight for money. They come in and they go, hey, like I saw Conor McGregor. Like We've had multiple guys come in and go, Hey, like, I think I'm the guy that can beat Conor McGregor. And it's like, you know, you're kind of just wide eyed, like, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. But money has changed things, right? Like a lot Mm -hmm. of people want to get into this sport for the wrong reasons. They think that it's an easy way to Instagram followers, models and money. Mm -hmm. What was it like when, you know, most of the fighters were doing this for the love of just fighting and trying to get better at just the pure art of fighting? It was better. It was a better scene. Um, it was a better time, you know. I mean, in many ways, it was a tougher time too. Like you know, like the, the fact that there was no money meant that you would not. You needed to find something else to do, and um, the more popular it got, that meant more money and and more opportunity, and that could become a career for somebody. Which which that was that is a blessing, you know. But. Um, when it was just about the, the love, you know, that was a special time for sure. Yeah, it, it definitely, um, it's definitely changed a lot. 
And so you take that first fight. What what was it like back then? Where where were fights taking place? Where is it like an arena? Like I've heard about them taking place at like basically like Buffalo Wild Wings and like Hooters and like where was this fight? Where were these fights taking place? And how many did you have on the amateur scene? I was uh, so when I fought, like I said, like six months after I started training, um, it was basically the same rules. Like we didn't have the shin guards and the the seven ounce glove, the, the precautions that are taken now, it was just like, you're not getting paid, but you're going to go, you're going to go fight, you know? Um, and the first time I fought was like a little four man tournament. So I was, I, if I won the first fight, I would fight again that night, you know? And uh, it was supposed to take place in Columbus, Georgia, but at a, like a recreation department or, you know, something like that, but for some type of facility, but then the the owners when it said mixed martial arts that term it just kind of came about but when they actually found out that, that it was nhb no holds barred or whatever you want to call it, like like cage fighting but we did it in a ring they were like that's not christian so you can't do that at our facility so that happened i think on weigh-in day so the day before the fight so we weighed in but then they secured a venue last minute just across the uh, Alabama and Georgia border from Columbus to Phoenix City, which is essentially the same thing. We're talking about very close cities. And uh, we fought in like a gymnasium, you know, basketball goals. It wasn't like at a high school, but maybe like a rec department or something, but 250 people there, you know, and, and uh, it was cool. It was very cool. What was it like in these tournaments? Because I don't think we'll ever see that again, right? Like these early days, you actually had tournaments where you were fighting multiple fights in a night. Yeah, it, it, and for me, I remember that the first time I did one of the, I did I did four of those, I think. Um, but I remember when I would win the first fight, like not no sense of accomplishment, like like you've done nothing you still have another guy that wants to take your head off take your ass to the back sit down and, and wait to get back to work you know that was even when i first fought that's that's exactly how it was um but the 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 lack of education for the the sport um was it a sport i don't even know you know like uh but the things you would hear in the crowd, the types of people in the crowd. It was, it was cool. It was different. It, it, like I said, in many ways, it's, it's a lot better now. And in some ways it, it's, it's worse, you know? What was the wildest thing you saw in the early years at one of these fights? Cause I've heard so many crazy stories about guys showing up, like smoking cigarettes and being 30 pounds overweight. The people should just, what's the wildest thing you saw at one of these local I, I saw things like that and and I saw, you know, people showing up with gear bags so that way like in case somebody did pull out these guys were just ready to go with their shorts and MMA gloves and mouth guard and cup and all that. Um the, I remember an injury that happened it was really unfortunate. Um this guy got kicked, his shin got kicked in the and like the teeth and it sounded like a wooden baseball bat just going crack you know and he got knocked out and he came back to the back and when he came back 
um, imagine his mouth instead of moving in two pieces like the mandible and then whatever this uh, top portion is, it was moving in three independent pieces. So this top portion, if you're not watching, I don't know how this is being viewed, but where you have like your, your mustache below your nose, between your nose and your teeth, a fracture had occurred in that place. And so when he was trying to speak, his where the gum line was, it that was moving in two pieces and his jaw was moving. And that was like an amateur fight. So that guy didn't even get paid. You know, that was it's pretty crazy. You know, imagine like you know, when Rashad Evans kicked uh Sean Salmon, I think was the fighter's name. It was like that, but this guy's face just got fractured. It was pretty bad. I know that that, that wasn't something that uh, happened like in the crowd or, you know, uh, you know, two midgets fighting or it's not like a crazy story like that. But I just remember like, man, that, that and like imagine you're a fighter on this amateur card or or it's like a mixed regional. Maybe you had like a regional pro on the main event or a co-main event main but like you're an amateur in the back and this guy walks in the back. If that's not like a wake up call, like, man, this is serious business. You know, I bet, I bet there were fighters back there that were questioning what they were doing. Yeah, no, I, I that's just insane. I, I think of that Rosen struck when, uh, when Ngano hit him and his just lip was just like, or maybe mm -hmm. it was like Overeem. One Overeem. Of yeah, it was yeah. Overeem. Yeah, yeah, Overeem's lip was just like, it was like his his skin was coming off his face. Like if you could have just grabbed that, you could have ripped the skin off his face kind of like a toothache. Yeah, you know? yeah and, and it just like some of the places that you fought and, and, the, and the things. If I, if I had had, you know, a lot of time to think about, maybe I could tell you a, a crazy story. But just like like that first thing where we had to move because it wasn't Christian to fight. MMA, you know, and, and you had to change states or, you know, um, I had to go and uh, like the same day weigh in type of thing, fight twice in one night, you know, just riding in a van, you know, all day, you know, with six guys in the van or uh, for no money, you know, like hoping that maybe you get some travel bucks or something like that. Or um, like that fight where that guy's teeth got busted up or mouth got busted up. There was a patch in the center of that ring and the place smelled of manure because it was like a an ag center you know you know like uh it was like character development and character building you know um and then you you know just start moving moving up moving up and then uh my first pro fight was at this place called wild bills which was a it was a nightclub it was like a country nightclub they did country concerts or country blend country rock type of thing but uh the promoter um, uh, was really good to us at the time it was called uh fight party productions and um we would we would do these fights and there was a lot of people that went to these fights and um like between two and five thousand you know this is, this was like a bigger nightclub you know so kind of and that's when it started like kind of kept so i started fighting in like oh three and uh, started uh, fighting on Brett's events uh, on a professional level in 05. And then you were seeing the growth of this thing. Um, that was also from fighting in small cities and then going to like, proper Atlanta, you know.
Yeah. And I, I was going to ask you about that, like how people viewed it, you know, because you had the pushback even Congress, you know, you had, um, what was the Senator's name from Arizona? You know, the super, uh, John, um, you know, uh, McCain. Yes. Yes. He, you know, and he, he fought MMA. Like he was, Hey, this is human cockfighting. We need to outlaw this. And, and um, like, what was the um, kind of, how was it viewed locally? Like by your friends, like your family, um, and, and was it kind of that kind of, Hey, this is too raw. This is too violent to be taking place. Well, again, like the education wasn't there. So a lot of people were like, man, this guy's crazy. You know, my friends were like, what is he doing? You know, my mom was against it. My dad was for it because my dad had done some martial arts background and he had watched MMA. He knew that it was, you know, a sport, you know, he also knew that, you know, at this time there was not any money in it. I mean, he wasn't delusional, but like he, he supported me like, Hey, go, you know, do this thing, give it your best, you know, kind of thing. But um, I think some of my, fr some of my friends thought it was cool. They knew that what I was doing was just on a much, you know, lower level than what you were seeing in the UFC or, you know, pride fighting championships or K1 heroes or, or shows like this. But um, I think for the most part, it was viewed as being cool, but it was definitely like, what is he doing? You know, it was, it was, a, it was a niche for sure. And so you have your first pro fight in 05, the scene's mm -hmm. starting to take off a little bit. How um, did, were you starting to see a lot more organized teams in Georgia? Were you starting to see kind of the Southeast really starting to grow at that point as it's starting to pick up some momentum? Georgia had a good fight scene um, at this time. Uh, that first wave of NHB fighters had become teachers. So they were, they really set the tone for the next wave of, of true MMA guys coming up. So when I was coming up, we had myself, my brother Micah, um, guys like Jeff Bedard, uh, Brian Bowles, who became WC champ, Forrest Griffin, who became UFC world champ. Um, we had uh, Jugal, um, who was like kind of teaching. Um, but we had Junior and Rafael Ostensal, uh, Diego Sariva um steven Ledbetter, you know these guys were coming out like the hardcore gym which is you know where adam and roy singer were, was teaching um there was some at atlanta based schools um at the time um i think it was called like knuckle up it was it was like la boxing then they became velocity kickboxing then they became knuckle up then they started kind of splinter cell so atlanta atlanta was really was really uh, going and then there were the smaller schools like where i was out of um and then some even smaller schools um out of like south georgia and places like that but but overall it was cool the scene was growing um for me and my brother it was cool because we were starting to fight on bigger shows and you know more people in attendance and it had the feel that you were at like a like a rock concert, like that type of equivalent. Like you're at a real event now, you know, because I've fought 10 amateur fights, which was, you could see the growth in the amateur events, but I fought on an army base. You know, I fought, like I said, on those like rec department type sites. I fought in hotel conference centers. I, you know, I, I fought 
um, in ag centers. I, I fought a uh, local civic center type of things, you know? And then when I turned pro, it was like, okay, we're at this Wild Bill's venue. It feels like a, a rock show. And then I started to try to, and, and Brett Moses did a great job as a promoter. And, and on that show, like I said, like I mentioned all those good fighters coming up in Georgia. Well, he was matching us up against other really cool fighters like Junior Austin Sal fought Dustin Hazlett who fought in the UFC and and um, uh, Diego and Douglas Lima who were like that not a full generation behind me but like I was an established pro when they started to get fight pro fights like just starting pro fights so maybe I had six seven fights when they first started you know uh, I think it was Douglas Lima fought Matt Brown you know, on one of these shows that I'm talking about, you know, so there was some real, it was a competitive environment, you know, that was happening here. Yeah. And you start your pro career off with three straight finishes and you really became known for your jujitsu. When did your love of jujitsu, because you, you start off your pro career, right? With, with a couple of submissions. And uh, I mean, it seemed like for a while, like you were submitting everybody. Yeah. My, my amateur, fights i had eight wins and i think it's seven submissions and one uh tko and then when i turned pro i submitted the first two guys and i knocked out the third guy but i think like i knew that i was gonna be a grappler because that was when i came up it was just that was superior you know you you saw I saw the fighters I wanted to be like, and they were boxer jujitsu guys, you know, but, but the jujitsu was most of the fights were going to the ground. Back then. You know, uh, Maurice Smith had came and done the striking thing long before I started fighting. Okay. So it wasn't, you know, and Eve Edwards was just keeping fights on the feet before, way before I started fighting. So it wasn't unheard of, but most of the fights were going to the ground and guys fought on the ground. They weren't, you got to get back up, you know, some guys, you know, Chuck Liddell and some guys like that. But when I was fighting, it was like, I wanted to be like BJ Penn or Kazushi Sakuraba or Hoyce Gracie or, you know, uh, Antonio Minotaro Nogueira, you know, uh, I wanted to fight like these guys, you know, because they could box and then they would get the submissions on the ground. And I think that, think that when I started training, my, my coach saw that, you know, I had these long legs and that I could do triangle chokes good and, and that I was obsessed with grappling. And so he was like, man, just go kick everybody in the head as hard as you can. And they'll take you down and you'll just tap them out. And that was basically that, that, that worked for a long time, you know? And then I, you know, as I started to, you know, after I fought for like a year and a half, I was still, or a year, year and a half, I was amateur, but I started you know, like I said, getting more into boxing, started watching some of these guys, BJ Penn and uh, Minotaro, and I wanted to get good hands too. You know, as, as a guy that loved pride, so um, I, I think it's so cool that you know you're starting to establish a name. Even before you make it to the UFC, you get to fight in Japan. You mm -hmm. go out to Tokyo. I mean, I think that's a lot of guys like it should be on a lot of fighters' bucket lists is to fight in Japan. Yeah, that was my goal because I was a 145er. I mean, I yes. was walking around at 150 pounds, 
walking around, you know, like not cutting weight. So I fought at some little catch weights at 150. I fought at 155. I fought at 145. I fought at 135 once. Um, but, and again, there was no money in the, at it in the time. And again, events were happening once every other month, you know, so just to lay that out, which means that only a select guys were making it. I had no, I didn't even want to be in uh, the UFC. Like, I was like, that'd be cool if I put on 20 pounds and could cut weight to 55, maybe, you know, but, um, but Josh Thompson had fought Eve Edwards and then they kind of almost like scrapped the lightweight division after that. I wanted to be a 145er and I wanted to fight in Shudo. And um, I ended up after I had made the move to top team, um, I had got that opportunity. I, you know, I was, I don't, I don't even remember eight, eight and one or 10 and one, whatever I was, you know, I got to fight the Shudo world champ um, who was ranked in the, you know, he was number one or number two of all 145ers in the world at that point. But I took it on such short notice. So it was a non-title fight. And I was, I was a regional guy. I was a, you know, I had a blue belt in jujitsu. My, my level was higher than that, you know, but that was, I had just, you know, started training in the gi and, and I was a student of martial arts. So that was my, my belt rank. And I think that, I think the organization who was, who reached out the top team, Hey, do you guys got anybody? And they were like, yeah, we got this blue belt, you know, and they were like, perfect. That's exactly what we want, you know, because he'd already fought like Antonio Carvalho and maybe he already fought Pequeno Noguera. So like they felt very safe with this fight. And I had a very good showing for eight days notice or whatever it was. So you lose that decision and where does that kind of take you, right? So you're 10 and two, we'll say eight and two. Um, you just take your second loss. Mm-hmm. What did you take from that fight? Cause like you said, you just fought the number one ranked guy. There's not a, like, I don't think people understand, like there wasn't a 135, 145 pound division in the UFC at this point. And so yeah. you just fought the best guy in the world and you lose a decision. What did right. that mean to you? And how did you learn from that fight? Yeah. And I thought, I kind of thought that I won the fight or that it was a draw. Um, but I learned that I deserve to be at that caliber. Like I, I am uh, capable of competing with the world-class guys. I didn't win that fight, but I nearly dropped him. And when I say nearly, I mean like he, you know, eyes crossed, he fell backward and the the ropes kept him up. Um, and then I caught him in a triangle uh, which I thought I deserved back then they would call, you know, um, a catch, you know, and then it, that was basically the equivalent of like a knockdown, you know, in boxing where it's like 10, eight, you know, cause he got a catch. Uh, I was still fighting under those rules. And then if I dropped him, he would have got a standing eight count, you know, um, but the, you know, it didn't go away, but that, that showed me I can, I deserve to be here. This is the level I'm at. And I was like, okay. And that was a real confidence boost for me. And um, it, I wasn't deterred by that loss. I was like, you know, like I said, I was young and and I wanted something hard for my life and, and a test. And so I was like, okay, let's, let's keep going. And so that takes place. And a couple of fights later, you find yourself on the ultimate fighter. Yeah, I had fought in Virginia against this guy. Um, 
uh, Dwayne Shelton was his name. And he didn't have a good record at the time, but I knew I was getting brought in to get crushed. He was like the local guy and he was managed by the promoter of that show. But he had lost to my teammate, Dean Thomas, and then another UFC vet. So I think like as a pro, he was 0-2 or 1-2, but he'd only lost to UFC guys. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I'll go in there and and wax this guy real quick. You know, dust dust off, get a cool belt. But um, he he dropped me. He belly to belly me like, you know, he threw me around like a rag doll. But I ended up in every round. I got mal at some point. And in the third round, got a rear naked. But my manager at the time had been speaking with Joe Silva about me just getting in the UFC. Um, I started taking more fights at 155. So they had already been in, in conversation and, um, you know, Joe had said that he liked what he saw and that he would talk with my manager and wanted to basically just like follow up with how my career was going, you know? So as I continued to fight, you know, monitor, you know, like, like how a scout would, you know what I mean? So, um, that's how that went down. My manager was in talks and, and they, that hey we're gonna we're trying to rebuild the lightweight division and and then and we were trying to just get me direct route to the UFC. We had never thought of stuff would happen for lightweights. It wasn't like the lightweights were getting shine um, on the events, much less so we're gonna do a show for this division. But that's like how they thought they could uh, catapult this division back into some level of popularity. So they made the Ultimate Fighter and. Um, they said, hey, we're going to give Cole the nod as far as like, we're going to tell Spike that we, or, or Pilgrim Films, the, the people who actually, that Spike contracted, that filmed, that, that, that actually did the Ultimate Fighter. Like, we're, we're going to give them the nod, but they still have to approve them because this is a TV show, you know? So, um, you know, I went and interviewed with them at, at this like trial that was actually in South Florida and, you know, just went through the, the channels, like, interview process, uh, medicals, secondary interview process, and, and became one of the 16 uh, guys on the show, had the uh, tough experience, just um, a positive experience. You know, that's was my gateway into the UFC, but um, the Ultimate Fighter was cool. You know, I'm very grateful for the experience, but I did not go um, on the Ultimate Fighter to be on TV. I got, I went on the fire to become a UFC fighter just to kind of give you guys some idea because ultimate fighter was very popular at the time. Um, I was very fortunate to have, have been on it. It's a positive experience in my life. But when we talk about some people ask me about it, like, like they think it was almost like very difficult, uh, trying process, almost like, the UFC was like, once you got to the UFC, then things got easy. And, and I just want to say that, you know, that the, the crew was amazing, but but the UFC is harder than Ultimate Fighter, you know, and and that, that yeah, that's how it was. But yeah, so that's how I got, I got on Ultimate Fighter 5, uh, was on there with one of the, the most stacked cast. Um, the division was obviously a very skilled division. The people that were on that show were amazing martial artists and became, went on to do amazing things like Manny Gamburian and Matt Wyman and 
Nate Diaz and Trey Maynard and Joe Lozon and, and other other really good guys. I mean, Andy Wang was really good and Brian Garrity was really good. And I can't say enough about all of the guys. They were they were very skilled. Well, you started off your UFC UFC career with like a bang, you know. You you have that epic fight with Andy Wang, and then you go right into that Leonard Garcia fight, mm-hmm. and you really kind of establish yourself as, I, I mean, and then into that Jeremy Steve, like, it, it was just an epic beginning to a career. Yeah, yeah, I fought a lot of of tough guys, and and things were going good for me in the gym. Um, as far as just like I started to really see development when you're fighting all the time, you're just kind of living in a constant training camp, right? But you're not seeing this idea of like I'm fighting all so often at one point in a 12 month period, I fought like 10 times, you know, um, that's you don't see the development because you're always fighting, you're always sparring, you're always training. But whenever I got to the UFC and there was time between fights, that's when you saw the development. And so after like that second UFC fight, I would say first, second UFC fight, when I had the time to like, okay, we're going to skill build. That's when I started to see development. So that's, you know, I started to have some positive results in the cage, but I would just attribute that to my great coaches and team that were helping me get the skills I needed to get. Yeah, and I, I think people don't realize the difference between a training camp and like building skills, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's times you're fighting for specific fighters and you're having to kind of focus on an A game, a strategy that you're going to use against a guy where the off time when you're building new skills, like you can't really build a new skill during a, you know, a four-week training camp. Like it can be very right. difficult. And so how did you manage to continue to get better? Because I know you're a guy that's always adding to the toolbox when you were fighting. Right. And I, I, again, like it was all my coaches and training partners, like uh, Mike Brown, um, seeing guys like him who are working toward world titles and, um, you know, just guys that were in pride and, and UFC and guys that were much better than me. They were, you know, even if I wasn't close with them, every round I got was like a mentorship in a way, even if they were beating me down, you know. Um, my coaches, Howard Davis Jr. Um, and Laborio and Pahumpina, uh, you know, who's my jiu-jitsu coach even to this day, uh, these guys were were helping me. My, my brother was, you know, always there um, being that training partner and just ha- just seeing the – the work ethic, you know, in this time, some money started to appear in MMA. Um, so the reason I say that is if there's money and you don't have to have a second job, that means that you can train two times a day instead of once a day. Well, that's a hundred percent more than you were training. That's double, right? So when you see that type of training, that's when you're going to see that type of improvement and that type of skill building. So when people talk about the MMA fighters of today and their skills based on guys of yesteryear, you can't really compare because these guys were, you know, were 
working 40 hours a week and then and on top of that doing very hard training and then trying to fight you know but like it's just kind of paved the way with all of this money in there now now guys and and now there's sponsors and people that want to be a part of a fighter's success there's avenues for people to only train which will of course lead to improvement in skills and development which is why the fighters i don't want to say better um they're definitely more athletic and they they definitely are they have a good idea of what's going on but i feel like back then you would see more specialists right you'd see like a guy that really knew jiu-jitsu or a guy that really knew uh, kickboxing but now you see the guys that are true mma fighters but i think that you see the specialists stand out now right that's why damian maya has such a good um run and that's why uh israel adesanya and you know these guys that always have one thing that stand out you know khabib and his wrestling you know like they, they will still there's always going to be if you are dominant in one area, I, I think that that's going to still be the way. You should be skilled. You should be dominant. You should train all all facets in MMA. But MMA, if you focus too much on it, that can uh, dilute your potential too. That that's a very fascinating thing to say, and I I agree. You know, I think sometimes guys they go away from their specialty thinking hey i'm doing mma i need to add these other three or four skill sets instead mm -hmm. of focusing and getting you know i think that's what khabib like you said khabib did that incredibly well he never got a right hand and just started throwing right hand bombs it was always you know wrestling is going to get me to where i need to be yeah and then and then like you look at gsp i mean he had a jujitsu black belt and he you know obviously impeccable wrestling and didn't have that background. He was a karate guy, but got some striking. He was an MMA fighter, but he had a jujitsu black belt. And I'm just saying that to say, like you see guys today who are very good MMA fighters, but you, you've seen it where the blue belts in your gym will tap out this guy and who's a UFC fighter, like a, a not athletic blue belt, you know, and, and that blue belt can't beat that guy up. We, we know this, okay? But what I'm just trying to illustrate for some, some people is like, in some ways, the sport has evolved. And in some ways, like those people who are looking to get to the top are kind of on this almost like uh, there's like a blueprint to get to a certain skill set in a short amount of time, which will get you to the UFC or one or Bellator or this type of show. But once you get there, you may get knocked down a peg and because you didn't have a base martial art you're 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 incapable of becoming uh, a contender or something like that you know do you think with the amount of athletes right because we are seeing more and more athletes just guys mm -hmm. that you know are choosing mma over sports like football mm -hmm. basketball yada 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 right we're seeing them and it seems like they have the athleticism and they, like you said, they get to a certain skill, but technically they still have so many flaws. Right. And that's okay. I'm just speaking from as a martial arts guy, you know, like it's good. It's good to be, it doesn't hurt to be technical. Yes. One, one moment. So 
now, um, you know, looking at back at kind of your career, um, I know I'm, I want to believe when, when you kind of left the UFC, I think you were like had the third most submission victories um, in promotion history. Yeah. Um, where you're at now. I mean, obviously, you're still probably in the top 10, mm-hmm. uh, but you're definitely a guy that's known for being a submission specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, what are any of those submissions like really stick out to you? Um, like any of those like big moments? Yeah. Yeah, all the ones that got submission of the night, <laughs> you know, those ones that got got you paid. Um, like when I submitted George Gergel with the triangle choke or the reverse triangle Kimura on Dan Lozon, um, rear naked choke on Sam Cecilia, rear naked choke on Ross Pearson, um, rear naked choke on uh, Bart Palaszewski, who was always an amazing fighter. Just these these ones that kind of like stood out like and, and got you paid are definitely always going to be the ones that you remember because um, not coming from, you know, a lot of money and, and then, you know, just like working your way up when you got those bonuses and you had those big paydays, they, they were definitely memorable, you know. And, you know, towards the end of your career, I, I remember talking to you uh, about that unfortunate situation when you were preparing for a fight and you were getting mm-hmm. to go to, what was it, Indonesia or Thailand? Yeah, it was uh, Manila, the Philippines. Oh, and, okay. and they canceled the event like a week before. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't understand, right? So they would see, hey, Cole Miller just made $80,000 on this fight, like, right? Or he just, he just got, you know, 40 to show, 40 to win, and then he won submission of the night. But you're having to pay trainers. You're having to pay for a fight camp. Yeah. I think that situation really opened my eyes to. Or taking a year off because you got injured in the fight. Yes. Or just like if you lose or let's say the fight didn't happen, you are out money because you mm-hmm. still have to pay your trainers and your team and your this guy and that guy. Yeah. And so that, that's, that's a really, um, I think, a situation that people don't talk about enough. Yeah, it's just, a, you know, the fighter's life is not an easy life. And I think that, you know, you, you do hear Dana White always talking about oper- it's an opportunity, you know. And then you heard Masvidal come out and say, like, uh, uh, where's opportunity mode at, at, at uh, in the uh, EA game, you know. It's called career mode. It's not called opportunity mode, you know. You know, I thought that was pretty uh, funny when he said that. But, um, you know, nothing's guaranteed with uh, this life in, in that and especially in that sport. Yeah. And it's almost like you have to be ready for everything. You have to be you have to almost mentally prepare yourself for that injury or for that fighter dropping out. And I, I think a lot of guys underestimate the importance of the mindset that it's how did you develop the type of right mindset as a fighter um i think i like i was telling you i was looking for something to do that was hard in my life and um i think because of how i started out and i had had i battled through surgeries had overcome loss i had a lot of drive i was i was young you know I had not been uh, beaten down to the point where I just wanted to give up. But I think that I think you have to have a lot go your your way. It, it, you know, you, it doesn't hurt to be lucky. And I was lucky to have um, 
been able to go to a big team like American Top Team to have gotten those skills. And like I said, uh, after having a loss, being able to uh, come back and I, I didn't, you know, it, whenever I would lose and, and these things would happen and I wouldn't have much money, I knew that I, only I could pull myself out of that thing because even though it's a, a team sport, you need these coaches, you need these training partners, you need guys like Dan Lambert who want to help and, and keep the doors open. Um, it's very much still an individual thing. And no one else is going to pull you out, so you got to do it. Um, I think it also helped that I, I didn't have, when I was coming up, I, I didn't have a family and, and other people to look out for. So I had that ability to uh, be selfish, you know. Um, and that's that's also one thing. It, it's a very humbling martial art, and, and you need to take care of your people. But if you can be selfish, you can afford to, to be selfish, I think that that's going to that's gonna help you. Because you, if you're selfish, that means that you can invest in yourself with your time, your money, your commitment, right? If you have like a family, and for me, it was easier. That's like I said, how, that's how I came up. But when I'd see these guys like Chris Lytle or um, uh, he's just one that, that sticks out, you know, um, as far as like he had a family, he was a firefighter and he's doing all these things. And. I, I really looked up to guys like that because they, I knew that they couldn't be selfish with their time and they had to make time to train. And I'm like, man, like those guys were the, the, the real special ones, you know? Yeah. And, and I tell guys that all the time, like when you can put yourself in a situation where you don't have those other responsibilities, you know, now I would never tell somebody like, Oh, you've got a kid. Like you should definitely leave your kid and pursue this dream. Like, no, that, that's not the martial arts way. That's not the martial arts way. But when you are single and you are able to poke focus on yourself, like you can really make some, some big headway in this sport. But I'm most fascinated actually about your after fighting career mm -hmm. because you're running a gym now and I'm fascinated with how you view martial arts and how important martial arts are to you. You are still yeah. training and getting better. Oh, yeah. Guys, they don't do that when they're done. And you're mm -hmm. still, you're taking time to learn the modern jujitsu game, the modern striking game. Mm -hmm. You're training in the gi. You're training no gi. What does martial arts mean to you? And why are you continuing to get better? I knew that whether, like I said, when I started fighting, it was not what it is now. Um, but I knew right then that this was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Now, if I had to get another job to do it, I would have. Um, but like, like I said, in some ways, like the development of MMA has become a real good thing for us, too. And because of that, there are many people intrigued by jujitsu um, or MMA or striking, but they want to learn martial arts. And that has a, afforded me. To be in a good position to be able to teach because i during my career i didn't have too many uh athletic gifts i focused on technique i think that's the one thing that i i had going for me i, I always had to be technical and because of that now i can transfer that technique and give that to other people and um, like i said i had been selfish for so long it was and in some ways i still am but um i think that for me after fighting i wanted to be able to make an impact on others and try to find a way to take what i knew of course nice to have um 
a career in martial arts and it make me enough money to support my family. But I knew I wanted to do this. I knew I wanted to always knew that, that I wanted to have my own school, be a teacher, be able to share my martial arts in the development of uh, men, women, kids, uh, officers, military, civilian, just like different types of martial arts and just help them with their growth, whether of self-defense or or weight loss, or they also had uh, competitive goals in, in mind for themselves, whether it be in the gi no gi or MMA. That's like what I wanted to do. So when you have a new white belt, because I know you're teaching most of the classes at your gym. So when you have a new guy, whether they're starting jujitsu or kickboxing, what do you tell them? Like, how do you start their career? How do you start their development? What are some of like the basics that um, you feel are super important to take a new person through? You know, I, I still struggle with the answer to this question because I've played with a couple things and I can't say that any one thing I see um, is better than the other. I think that they just need to go train. Mm. I think that, you know, like as far as like I've taught like basics, very basic like this, then I started, I've also taught sequences, you know, like you need to do this to this to this, um, or you do this, then the next guy does this and the next guy does this as far. And that's separate than just teaching individual moves, attacks and defenses, you know, and I can't say that any, any of those one things that I've really seen works better than the other. I think if you just get somebody, um, give them some skills and get them on the mat, that's, that's ultimately what I, what I've seen. And I think that no one way is better for everybody than another. I think that maybe for some people it's best to, you know, they need to just drill. And some people, if they're not getting better, many people positional training is going to be the way to go. Like that's one thing I do see is positional training. Like, okay, you're in the close guard, execute your sweep, submit, or stand up while this person tries to hold you down or uh, half guard, kind of the same thing. Like these, whatever your bottom of mount, top of mount, like whatever your position is for where you're at, I feel like by isolating that position, the students don't have to deal with all everything happening uh, in what I call like the in-betweens as much. So it's not as chaotic and that can help them. And then you can have them roll in full speed. But as far as like just teaching them and cultivating a base, I've played around with some things and I can't notice that anything, one thing is better. Just get them on the mat. Yeah. And this, this life is hard, right? Whether you are just a 40 year old, mom who's wanting to get into self-defense or you're a young guy that's wanting to fight one day in the future it's a hard life right there's the mm -hmm. ups and downs how do you have you found anything to help guys kind of like retention wise like how do you get guys to stay how do you get guys to stick around do you feel like um sometimes schools push their students too fast or sometimes not enough like there's got it there's that fine balance that you have to find as a gym owner <laughs> I think for me, I, I think it's the diversification in instructors. Like I have a really good team around me um, and we come from different backgrounds. So I've only been open less than five years. Right. But I have a full team because there were some people in, a, in my area that 
had different backgrounds. I'm in a military town, so I have access to people who trained somewhere else before. And these people can often be more patient or um, maybe less intimidating in some ways, um, depending on who the student is, right? Like some people like to be coached a little bit more harshly. Other people like to be left alone. They don't even want to be coached. They just want to find their spot on there. Just like how they're within certain career fields, you see a, a, a plethora of personalities and people types. even in jujitsu, it's the same, especially with the students. So the fact that I have instructors that are also uh, different, I think that's what helps me retain these students because for every type of student, I might not be your cup of tea or um, this coach might not be, or heck, you might even respond better to the purple belt coach versus the, the black belt coaches because of this, their demeanor or how they say things. And because I have um, a good amount of coaches that have different background and different personality types, I think that's the one thing that helps me retain students that I, I am fortunate enough to have a program with people who can be there for that, any type of student. That, that's so funny you say that because guys would go, man, you're Cole Miller. You're the guy that fought in the UFC. There's no way somebody would choose a purple belt to like learn under other than 100%, you. 100%. But that 100% happens. And that took me a long time to realize, you know, because when I was a brown belt, I was like, why would somebody rather learn from this purple belt than myself? Because I'm bet, you know, like my ego was in the way. And now I sit back and I'm like, man, it's beautiful when all of these different people, like all these different voices have kind of have a say and people can kind of choose their mentor in the gym. I think, man, I think what you just said right there is a crucial aspect to keeping people in the martial arts and improving. Yeah. Some people have just like a, uh, you know, like if you take yoga and you know that there's different like yoga voices and the way they talk <laughs> like this, like it might not even have to do with skill or patience or anything. It just could be like, I like the tone of this person's voice or, you know what? Um, Cole only ever shows attacks. Offense, 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 offense. And he never shows us the defense to anything. You know, I'm guilty of that. And, and there's, but I have, I have coaches that have a more defense mentality and that's good because if I didn't have those guys, my students would probably get be getting tapped out at the tournaments, you know, but often, often I, I, uh, I think what's important is, is, uh, not what is important for everybody. And, and how can you have a perfect program? You know, how, you can't make everybody happy. So people are going to quit, you know, um, I, I wouldn't say that I'm harsh, but maybe I raise my voice. I don't yell at people. I, I, they don't come to be yelled at by somebody who might even be younger than they are. You know, they, they don't come for that. I don't want to have like, how to me, you know, like we, we don't run this type of program at my school, but like, I might be like, no, like if one, one part of the move is wrong, the whole move's wrong. That's what I mean when I say strict. So it's like the hand goes here. It doesn't go where you think it goes. Like I might say something like that, you know, I don't yell at the person, but I'm trying to communicate like this is important and it's important to me because I don't, I would, if I don't communicate the importance and you got hurt outside of the school, whether it was in a cage or in a defense environment, 
whether it was for our youth or an adult, like that would weigh heavily on me that, that I didn't do what I should have done to keep them safe. Yeah. I, I have a very similar style, so I, I can definitely vibe with what you're saying. And some people don't like that though. Some people like a little bit more freedom. Some people like to, you know, I, I, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And um, I, I really now want to go back to you you're starting your business. Like people don't realize, like, just because you have this background, people just think if I become the UFC champion and I open up a gym, the gym will just make me millions of dollars or people will just start flourishing and coming in. It's like you are sadly wrong. Like you have to learn how to run a business. How long did it take? For, like, what are some early business mistakes you've made? And how have you grown as a business owner? Man, sometimes it, it's just like jujitsu. You're going like up and down. <laughs> and, and and there's things that are going to happen that are just out of your control. Just like in jujitsu, you can't, you can't control somebody else. That's unhealthy. You got to control yourself. That's the best type of control, right? Self-control. So when you try to control another person, that's when you, you start to have problems. And you try to look. You try to control, you know, these other factors. You can't control those. I couldn't control that COVID popped up, you know. What what am I going to control? I can just control the culture of my school, you know, um, the welcoming of the students. You know, we're here for you, you know, in in, in the times that you need us, you know, whether you got, got beat up or attacked outside of the school and that's what brought you in or, or whether, you know, like you just got some – low testosterone and you, you want to be around other other guys, you know, just to kind of get some endorphins flowing or, or you know, your, you and your spouse got divorced and now you need something new to work on personal belt. Like I can be here for you in these things. You need to lose weight and you don't like the monotony of the gym. I can like, that's all I can really do. Also, I sought out some mentorship from some people who had had some success in uh, martial arts uh, prior. Like I, you know, I wouldn't have just been a self-taught martial artist, right? You don't, wouldn't just like watch some fights and go into my garage and try to replicate the moves. I wanted to seek good trainers. That's why I went to American Top Team. It's like the Ivy League of martial arts, like have world champ coaches to help cultivate me. So I, I, I always paid attention inside of the gyms that I would visit or go to, but then I also would ask questions. And before I opened my school, um, I spoke whether it was going to seminars or actually just making direct contact with some people who had been in the martial arts industry and had had successful gyms. I, I did that. So it's important, like anything, do your research, do some homework, find, find out different ways to go about running the business. It's not, if you build it, it will come. It is not that, you know, like, what was that movie? Field of dreams. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not that if you just lay the mats down and hit open, people aren't going to come. You, so you gotta, and, and you can't, you gotta establish like how you want the culture and the feel of your, your academy to be. Um, there's nothing wrong with any of the types, but you have to, you have to know what it is that you're building, you know? And I had an idea. Sorry guys, I have no idea why the recording stopped. At the time, I was not aware that it stopped recording. So I am so thankful that we got most of this interview. I believe we're only missing the last six to seven minutes. So we're not missing too much, but it kind of sucks that it ended so abruptly. I just want to take a second to thank Cole for coming on. Cole's one of my favorite people that I've met through the martial arts. 
I mean, Cole's done everything. And to hear how passionate he still is about learning and teaching martial arts really inspires me, and I hope it inspires you. If you have never seen Cole Miller fight, do yourself a favor. He is one of the OGs in the UFC. I mean, this guy helped put the 145-pound division on the map. And as I mentioned in the podcast, I mean, I believe when Cole stopped fighting, he had the third most submission victories in UFC history. I mean, this guy is a legit black belt. I've been on the mat with him. I have rolled plenty of rounds with Cole, and I can attest he is one of the most talented guys I have ever trained with. So thank you again, Cole, for sharing your story and sharing some wisdom. I'm sure most of you are aware that I took off the past eight days. I have not released a podcast. I spent my time focused on coaching. I had a couple of athletes with some really big events this weekend, and it was my first time cornering an MMA fight. I have never been in MMA corner before. This was my first time, and it was an amazing experience. Luckily, we came away with the win. My fighter um, knocked out his opponent in 22 seconds. He looked incredible. I really think the sky's the limit for this guy. I'll have him on the the podcast soon to kind of give his story because you guys are not going to believe this guy's story. That's all I'm going to say. Until next time, you guys know I love and appreciate you. Got a lot more podcasts planned for this upcoming week, so (laughs) definitely you guys are going to have to go too long without hearing the grappling discourse. Peace.